HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is another episode of What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And today we're going to be talking about um, some kind of, from my geeky point of view, some kind of earth-shattering reports that came out just in the last couple of weeks. Um, The week of October 21st, uh, two um, organizations that I follow closely published uh, sort of Mm, uh, companion reports. The first was uh, the Pew Commission, otherwise known as, uh, also known as, I should say, as the Center for a Livable Future out of Johns Hopkins. And they wrote uh, a report that was a follow-up to an, a kind of groundbreaking study they did in 2008. And this follow-up is called Industrial Food Animal Production in America, examining the impact of the Pew Commission's priority recommendations. At the same time that this report came out, the Animal Agriculture Alliance published Advances in Animal Agriculture, which was kind of a response to the 2008 report um, and presumably a response to the follow-up suggestions or the follow-up, um, uh, I don't want to call it a report card. Let's call it a report card. Um, so anyway, to that end, I invited my dear friend, Emily Meredith, who is the communications director for the Animal Agriculture Alliance, and she manages all aspects of their communication strategy. She is responsible for the Issues Management Committee and coordinating effective responses to the issues of the industry. Emily also works closely with the media, and she develops the Alliance's online outreach efforts. And using both traditional and social media, she educates urban urban consumers about the importance of animal agriculture. Um, Emily received her degree in international affairs and journalism from the George Washington University, and um, she has a concentration in food and drug law from Seton Hall University in Newark, New Jersey. Right now, she's waiting for her admission to the Bar Associations of New York and New Jersey. Emily, welcome to the program, and I didn't know you were waiting to get admitted to the Bar. That's way cool. 
Well, I actually am admitted now, so I probably need to update my bio. But I guess for you should. Back, Katie. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> you know, I always like having you on, Emily. You are such a reasonable human being and such a joy to talk to that um, it's a great pleasure for me. Sadly, our other guest, Bob Martin, and I'm going to read his bio anyway. Um, Bob has pneumonia. And it just, you know, contacted me through his uh, PR person today at 1130 and said, I'm sorry, I just cannot do this. So it is with great regret uh, that I um, lament the absence of Bob Martin. But just to let people know, Bob is the director of the Food System Policy Program at the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future. And recently he led the effort to examine what progress has been made in industrial agriculture in the last five years, the result of which was the well-received report called Industrial Food Animal Production in America, examine uh, and that is the report that I just referred to previously he served as the executive director of the Pew Commission on Industrial Farm Animal Production which released the study I referred to earlier in 2008 which is considered the landmark study on the state of industrial ag in the United States so Bob we wish you well hope you felt feel better soon and I look forward to welcoming you at another time to this program so Emily one of the things that really struck me um when I was reading uh, both of your reports, and I did read both of them um, with great interest, I might add, is that your report cast quite a lot of aspersions on the Pew Center's um, scientific methods. And I know that's not really your bailiwick, but I'm going to quote something from your report uh, on page 17. While the industry, that is the animal agriculture industry, has been working to improve, groups like the Pew Commission on Industrial Farm Animal Production and the Center for the Livable Future have been issuing reports and calling certain production practices into question while offering no real solutions. These reports are based on emotional appeals and misinformation rather than sound science and practicality. And then during the teleconference that I participated in, Dr. Hurd, that's a, uh, Dr. Scott Hurd, for those of you who haven't listened to a program with him, has been on the show a couple times. He is a, a, veteran, a vet who um, is very, you know, he's a great guy and a, and a very knowledgeable guy. But he said this, Looking, look at the scientific literature. There has never been a peer-reviewed scientific study, nor have they used appropriate methodology to review um, and this is especially from the Pew. From Pew. Meanwhile, the Pew report says many more hours were spent between meetings reviewing information provided by commission staff, including at least 170 peer-reviewed academic papers, et cetera, et cetera. So why is there such a conflict between what your industry believes the Pew Commission is doing and what the Pew Commission believes that it is doing? Do you really think that they're just out there making this stuff up? I don't think they're making it up, but I think, as with a lot of things we tend to talk about on your show, they're coming at these issues with uh, a specific bend, which, of course, is their prerogative to do. But just going back, so the Animal Ag Alliance isn't new to the Pew Commission report. In fact, we were very involved in um, their issuance of their 2008 report, uh-huh. Industrial Farm Animal Production in America. And actually, we were involved with them over two years before that report was even issued. And we had helped them set up farm tours. And in fact, they even toured many of our member farms um, right. and ranches before even issuing their report. And actually at the press conference that they held uh, just a few weeks ago, they actually said, what they were asked the question, did you ever go and visit any farms that you thought were doing a good job? And they actually named a few off. And and several of those that they named were actually some of our own members. Uh-huh. And so we've been very involved in this whole kind of back and forth with them. And there were actually experts um, that we routinely use at the Alliance to kind of help us sort through this science 
that they were originally consulting with to try to get information, and then in the end they just decided to write the report themselves and not really consult with some of those scientific experts. So I think that's where this feeling that um, they're not using sound scientific methodology and peer-reviewed studies comes from. And again, I can't speak for Dr. Hurd, right. but I know him and others feel that same way. I know. I think that's very interesting because, I mean, after all, they do have all these citations at the end of the report of the studies that they did use, and I'm assuming that those are peer-reviewed. So I was kind of surprised by that statement uh, on the part of um, Kay Johnson, who is, uh, what is her title, the president of the agriculture president and ceo yeah yes. I, I was kind of surprised by that i really was and um and i know that the pew uh commission will probably be surprised uh, be surprised as well when they see that um but let's move on to um some of the other things that they covered which i thought were so interesting and that you covered also which was food safety advancements um you guys in your report published a lot of great data about uh, the incidence of foodborne illness um, reducing over the last few years. Uh, the Food Safety and Inspection Services began testing chicken for Campylobacter during the third quarter of 2011. The inter- industry has reduced incidence by 34%. Um, and it goes on. There's like some really nice stats there that you should, I'm sure, be proud of. Um, and yet at the same time, the Pew Report uh, re- you know, came up with statistics not directly about foodborne illness, but about multi-drug resistant strains of foodborne illnesses like Campylobacter and Salmonella. And I wondered if you could kind of help me square that equation. Um, well, you know, I think first I want to say that I know we kind of read through, you kind of read through those numbers quickly, but 34% just for Campylobacter during the third quarter um, of the industry reducing that is a huge, I mean, that's a huge number. And there's the studies, the report that we issued goes on um, with more huge numbers like that. For example, um, from 2008 to 2013, the chicken industry also reduced the occurrence of salmonella in ground chicken by 50%. Right, that was great. Huge number. Um, And and, salmonella on whole chickens by 64%, which was even more impressive. Right, and in swine, there were similar reductions. I mean, they found um, salmonella on just 1.66% of hog carcasses um, last year compared to 6.9% from 1997 through 1998. So, again, the industry is continuing to um, improve in those areas and recognize that food safety is of the utmost importance when it comes to producing a wholesome product to feed, you know, people in this country who enjoy meat, milk, and eggs as part of their diet. Right. I think that the Pew Commission tends to focus a lot on this issue of antibiotic resistance, which I'm sure we're going to talk about Oh, a yes, lot Emily, we are. <laughs> and, well, I'm not a Get ready, girlfriend. So I am ready. Um, well, I am not a scientist, and, you know, that is a little, you know, I would tell you to have Dr. Hurd or Dr. Raymond back on to talk about that. I think that they um, misrepresent some of those numbers, and they tend to, um, I think they tend to tap into that fear. I think there's a lot of fear out there that Americans are feeling. You know, they want to make sure that what what they're eating and what they're drinking and all of that is safe and wholesome and that they can count on that. And I think that um, the Pew Commission and Center for a Livable Future itself would admit that they're really tapping into kind of the consumer interest in food, kind of that new, this new sort of interest in how food is produced, and they're tapping into that. Right, new and inconvenient like interest. <laughs> I don't think it's inconvenient. <laughs> I, you know, you know I'm the first one I to do. 
recognize that it's there and that we, you know, the industry needs to do a better job of communicating. But, um, you know, I think it's easy for these sort of detractor groups like Pew and Center for a Liberal Future to put this information out and um, try to tap into that, that fear that people have. And I think that's what they're doing with these with these resistant streams and trying to um, cloud, you know, muddy the waters instead of kind of standing up and, and championing the industry and their improvements. Instead, they're trying to now muddy the waters and say, well, you know, there's these resistant strains and so that they really haven't had as much improvement as the industry has said they've had. You know, I think that's always their goal is to kind of undercut the industry. And again, what I think that Kay Johnson-Smith meant in her conclusion to our report was that you know, they don't have their boots on the ground. I think it's very easy for, with myself included, you know, I sit in my office in Washington, D.C., and I, I communicate about the issues. And so I think it's very easy for those of us who have that sort of job to do that when we're not really the ones every day who are out on farms, out on ranches, raising animals for food production. It's easy for us to make assumptions and to make recommendations, but we don't really look at things. We don't look at the forest through the trees. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Well, that 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 is certainly true. You know, not all of us are, are ranchers or farmers. And, you know, certainly I appreciate the hard work that goes into raising any kind of crop, whether it's on four feet, two feet or, you know, seeds from the ground. But still... Uh, I think that there's always room for improvement, and 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 so to that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something that I read in this Pew report at, from the National Antimicrobial Resistance Monitoring System, which even your industry seems to pay some uh, lip service to, um, and they reported, and it was another study. I mean, I, I won't read all of the statistics that they had, but it reviewed, for example, uh, 1,729 E. coli isolates from human and food animals collected over six decades, and found that multi-drug resistant pathogens had increased from 7.2% in the 1950s to 63.6% in the early 2000s. And that really does um, speak to the use of antibiotics as a prophylactic uh, and or growth promoting uh, use in animal agriculture, which is what the Pew Commission was recommending be phased out and ultimately banned. It's not that people want to see uh, farmers not treat a sick animal is that they want to stop seeing uh, antibiotics used as something that is part of what's called production uh, as opposed to treating illness. And that's where I think, you know, there's a big disconnect between your industry and what people like the Pew Commission are looking for in terms of making steps forward. And that's where I think the industry really needs to kind of um, get out of the bubble for that. So what do you say when, when somebody tells you a statistic like I just did, that it's that uh, multidrug-resistant pathogens have increased exponentially in the last 50 years due to this kind of use? And human overuse, okay, you know, just saying, paying lip service to that too. But, I mean, you can't right. really dispute that, right, Emily? Come on. Can you just well, I that? think there's a few things we need to keep in mind. Number one, I want to address, as you just pointed out, you know, antibiotic resistance um, is caused greatly by human use of antibiotics as well. Even just looking at the CDC report that came out a few months ago, yeah. um, Center for Disease Control, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I do. Um, they, they said in the report, which I think was very telling, there was a point in that report where they said that any, you know, just simply using antibiotics causes resistance. And I think that's what we need to keep in mind. And in fact, that report said very little about the use of antibiotics on farms. It it mainly focused on the use of antibiotics um, for human medicine. 
And I think that that was telling as well in that really this resistance that we're seeing, yes, um, you know, there everyone needs to address that issue and farmers and ranchers are going to continue to make sure that antibiotics are used responsibly um, in farm animals. But beyond that, we need to make sure that we're using antibiotics safely in human medicine as well and that we're not causing resistance, which as the CDC points out is a big issue. And, though, and antibiotics used in human medicine are not being used as judiciously as possible. The second point, I would say, to your point, that really these sort of, as the Pew Commission argues, these um, resistances we're seeing in foodborne illness pathogens are because of growth promotion. Well, that really gets into an area where the Food and Drug Administration, with their guidance 209 and 213, have mandated that um, growth prom- uh, antibiotic use for growth promotion, um, which are medically considered medically important, are going to be voluntarily phased out, and though and that's really um, kind of solidifying what the industry has already begun to do and has been doing for a long time. For example, in poultry, hormones used for growth promotion haven't been used for several years across the board; are not being used, um, and so that's already this FDA guidance that is waiting for signature from the president. Um, as, as I understand it, is at the Office of Management and Budget awaiting that signature, um, which will hopefully come in the next few months. Um, they're phasing that stuff out already, um, and that's just solidifying what the industry is already doing. So, again, I think it was a missed opportunity for the Pew Commission and the Center for a Liberal Future to just ignore that that was happening well, um, instead of saying, yes, this is a step in the right direction. Yeah, but the thing is, is that there's two things I want to say to that. One is that... Um, the the sort of issue of voluntary withdrawal and the guidances from the FDA that you refer to 209 and 213 which by the way anyone can google on their uh, you know on their computer phase out quote unquote production uses but allow for quote unquote disease prevention so you, essentially you're saying that you know how how are you going to regulate disease prevention then becomes uh, the 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 excuse for using these drugs as opposed to saying oh I'm going to make my animals muscle up faster so there so there's that's a very um, a very murky and uh, elusive a guideline if you ask me and then and I think if you ask anybody else even yourself Emily come on you got to admit the difference between disease prevention in a confined area feedlot uh, versus um, growth promotion what's the difference you know you got all these animals crammed in you're still going to dose them every day. And and to speak to your point about, you know, human overuse, we don't treat anyone every single day with antibiotics. It just does not happen in this country. No one in the world, no one is treated with antibiotics every day at a low dose level. And Dr. Raymond is fond of using an example of like, oh, someone in a college dorm gets meningitis. And so therefore we might issue a, you know, an antibiotic for the entire dorm. Yeah. Okay. You might do that and you might do it for 10 days. That is not 365 days a year. And that's what's happening on farm in uh, production areas that use intensive farming practices that include confined areas. Right? Am I right, Emily? I don't think that's what happened. No, I was. What? I don't think you're right. With all due respect, you know I love you, but uh, you know I think I think we again, uh, Katie, as you and I typically get into, I think we need to be very careful about our terminology. Um, you know, farming does not, as I've said on your show before, farming does not look how it did 50 years ago, and it right. doesn't look that way because we're making these advancements in terms of sustainability in terms of food safety and animal welfare. And so I think the the word confinement, again, kind of sends off this electric, you know, 
it, it resonates with people, and I think it, it's very sexy for folks like you in the media to use those types of inflammatory words. But in reality, um, just getting back to what Guidance 209 actually says, it's called the judicious use of medically important antimicrobial drugs in food-producing animals, and it calls for expressly phasing out the use of medically important antibiotics for growth promotion. Right, but not um, for disease to- prevention. Well, I mean, Katie, we've got to treat animal. If there is, as Dr. Hurd said, and I think this is a very great uh, opinion piece that I ran in USA Today about a week and a half ago. It was written by Dr. Scott Hurd, who, as you mentioned, has been on your show before. Yes. Um, animals, fan. because of their, their instinctual tendencies, are very slow to show illness. And so often what happens on farms is that's the first sign of a problem. They'll treat the entire barn for some sort of illness, and I would encourage, and he explains that better than I just did in his opinion piece that ran in USA Today, but I think that's an important thing to note. I mean, and I don't think that we, at the first sign of your child being sick, you take him to the doctor, and that's kind of how it works on farms, too. Um, and always with, and going back to Guidance 209, there's this veterinary oversight um, component, and again, Farmers and ranchers already use antibiotics for disease prevention and control with the express oversight of a veterinarian. So FDA's guidance tonight is just, again, cementing what the industry is already doing. But, again, I think that's important to note that it's not just that these antibiotics are being used willy-nilly. They're being used with the express oversight of a veterinarian to make sure that they're used judiciously. Okay, that brings me to another point, but we have to take a short break. Emily, do not go away. This is way too fun. So um, stay tuned, folks. We're going to take a short sponsor drop, and then we'll be right back with Emily Meredith from the Animal Agriculture Alliance. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit rt11.com. We're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the phone with me today is Emily Meredith, who is the Communications Director for the Animal Agriculture Alliance. We're discussing two reports that came out recently, one from the Center for Livable Future at Johns Hopkins and the other from the Animal Agriculture Alliance, which Emily had a great deal to do with. Um, And we were just talking about antibiotic resistance and antibiotic administration on farm and recent FDA, not so recent, but relatively new guidance uh, from the FDA about how uh, antibiotics are to be used on farm. And you brought up the issue, the, set, the question that uh, about, you know, the fact that, that antibiotics are now um, going to be uh, regulated more by having a vet oversee the administration of those antibiotics, which in the past, for those of you who don't know this, was really almost completely unregulated. In other words, if you wanted to feed your animals antibiotics for growth-promoting purposes or disease prevention, you just simply, it was added to your feed and water and the animals went for it. Now, theoretically, there's going to have to be more veterinary oversight. Am I right about that, Emily? I would say you're you're generally right about that. Okay. Um, so, but again, I would say that there has always been a great deal of veterinary oversight. I mean, just for, and I know that we kind of always get into this area that 
you know, farming is just for profit, which it's not. You know, these farmers and ranchers have been doing this for years. But the financial component is a component, and, you know, they're they're doing this as a business. And so, again, I think it's very important to remind people that antibiotics are expensive, just like they're expensive when you go to treat yourself or treat your children or treat your family members with antibiotics. They're expensive. They're expensive for animals as well. And so um, I think that's an important note to remember when we're talking about this kind of overuse is that it's expensive to treat your animals with antibiotics. So those antibiotics are really only being used when they're absolutely necessary because they're expensive. Yeah, but they were being used for growth promotants, and they didn't find them too expensive for that. In other words, the cost ratio, the the, the, the cost uh, means there is that you make more money by giving antibiotics than by not giving antibiotics and potentially uh, either having a longer you know, food-to-muscle conversion or conversely having a, a, a more sick animals. And I think that there's often a lot of um, discussion about the so-called Danish study. I'm not going to get into that now because we're almost running out of time. But I do want to say one thing that Scott Hurd said to me, the, the vet we keep referring to. And he said, you know, the problem with um, guidance number 213, I think it is, is that there aren't enough large animal vets out there to be writing these scripts. And that brings up the problem of not having a relationship with a veterinarian and having, uh, you know, your local vet just write a kind of blanket script for you. This was brought up in the Pew report that just came out. Um, and not really having somebody who is actually overseeing uh, practices on the farm. But I want to turn to something more interesting to me right now, and that's contract farming, because you just talked about how, um, you know, the these are all farmers and ranchers, and they and they have, you know, obviously need to make a living, and if, certainly I, I, I agree with that. But one of the, the industries, in particular the poultry industry, is almost exclusively, um, Emily, you're still there? I'm here. Okay. One of the industries that we're talking about, the poultry industry, is is almost exclusively now uh, done by contract farming. And this is like because the whole poultry industry has become very integrated, very vertically integrated. And so these, uh, what's happening in the contract farms is that people agree – and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but but farmers will agree to you know build an infrastructure and raise up you know X number of thousands of chicks for Tyson or whatever. And what happens is, and one of the Pew Commission's recommendations was that. <clears throat> In fact, I'll read this quote. The, to- the nearly total vertical integration of the poultry industry is a cautionary tale for the remaining sectors of animal protein production. Virtually all poultry production is under contract production, which re- restricts the independence of producers, tying them to the integrator with few rights of their own. The swine industry is now moving in the same direction with more integrator control and loss of producer independence. Now, I, I would consider that a very alarming um, direction for the industrial agriculture, livestock agriculture sector to go in because it does reduce the amount of say-so that the contractor themselves have uh, about how their animals are raised. And I wondered if you'd like to comment on that, on the contraction of the industry and, and the use of contract workers in that sense. Well, you know, I think, again, that um, the Pew Commission has this touching concern for the American farmer, um, clearly, but I think that we need to be very, um, again, we need to be careful with the vertical, you know, these, these terms like vertical in- integration. You know, I've been on a lot of farms that are part of a vertically integrated system, and I have to tell you that I am, have been blown away by how efficiently they are run 
how professionally they are run, how well the animals are cared for, how food safety is standardized across the board. I mean, that's the kind of benefits you get from that system. You get the utmost food safety. You get really, really top-notch animal care. You make, you get, you are ensuring that antibiotics are used judiciously because they do have to follow certain standards that are set down by um, these kind of umbrella or companies. And beyond that, you get a very, very sustainable system. I've been, like I said, on a lot of vertical, vertically integrated farms, and they have huge advancements in terms of turning what would otherwise be waste material back into fertilizer or back into, um, you know, help grow the crops uh, better. Um, they turn excess animal, bypro- animal products into byproducts like biofuel or other things that we use every day like soap and um, you know, just a myriad of other of other byproducts. And that's kind of what you get from that vertical integration is you get that efficiency in areas that are important to Americans, like sustainability. Americans want to know that farming is sustainable nowadays. And I think that with those vertically integrated systems, you're getting that um, to the utmost degree. And I think that's what's important to note and not that these growers are losing their kind of um, say-so. I don't think that that's true at all. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. And I think it's also important to note that people see these farms now as corporations or as companies, and that's not true. Those growers, as I've said this on your show before, I know I have, they're family farmers. 98.6%, according to the most recent United States Department of Agriculture data, are family-owned and operated. So even though they're ultimately selling their birds to perhaps a Tyson or someone else um, to earn top dollar for that animal, they are, they're still family farming. They're still adhering to their true values, and they're adhering to those standards that are making sure that our food is as safe as it can be and that those animals are as well cared for as possible. I, you know, I love the way you say that, and you, 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 you are worth your weight in gold to this industry. i got to say, you are an amazing spokesman for your industry, Emily. But what I'm going to say to you in response to that is, first of all, these contract growers, um, one of the things that the Pew Report mentions is that they can be terminated at any time. In other words, they can they can take take out a loan to build a new barn and if something goes wrong they're stuck with the cost of that they don't get their birds or for instance uh the the company decides that um they don't have enough you know layer they don't have enough stock to give that particular grower it's uh you know it's it's quota of birds for that season and so that guy is just shit out of luck and then the other thing that happens to these people is that in terms of waste management and i'm sorry we're not getting to that because yes i agree a lot of the waste product a lot of the the uh you know material the litter from these poultry farms and swine farms is being sprayed on on uh, fields that has its own set of problems in as much as it brings arsenic as it uh, antibiotics and other uh, unwanted chemicals into our soil and water systems that's another discussion we'll have at another time but some of these but what happens is, is that, uh, say, a, a Waterkeepers Alliance will sue a particular, and this happened on the Chesapeake Bay recently, and I know you know what I'm talking about, the Tylers, and they ended up winning because Tyson was willing to foot the bill for their defense. But the fact is is that this co- this family was made liable for the waste disposal that they felt that they were doing their best job, but they weren't being assisted. Um, it wasn't being addressed. It was their responsibility, 
not the responsibility of Tyson, even though they had a contract with them. And to me, that was wrong. I feel like if you're going to hire a farmer to, you know, raise your birds or whatever the animals is, then you got to be all in with the waste management and the feed costs and all the rest of it. And the way it works now, that is not what's happening. And I think that's a real problem with these contract growing issues. And I think that's something that the Pew Report addressed very, very well. Sadly, Emily, we are having to close on that note. <laughs> nice how I got the last word there, right? Um, you did. <laughs> but Don't now, think I'm going to let you get away with that the next time. <laughs> Emily, we're going to see each other this week. I'm very excited. Um, Emily uh, is instrumental in making me the small... A voice of what I think of as reason and what they probably think of as the lunatic fringe uh, in the animal agriculture industry. <laughs> so we'll be seeing each other in Kansas City in just a few days, and uh, we can continue this conversation then. But thank you in the meantime so much for being on the show and being so, you know, really, you're just, you're terrific spokesman for your industry, and I really appreciate you bringing us the other side of the, of the, of the coin here. So um, without further ado, thank you, Emily, and thank you to my sponsor and my engineer. Joe Galarraga and we hope you enjoyed this program stay tuned for more next week we'll be back with uh, Alberto Gonzalez uh, Alfredo Gonzalez from the government accountability office for from the United States government we'll be talking about hemp and poultry inspection get ready thanks for listening till next week Bye-bye. thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.